Our text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, and this is God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Will you pray with me? Father, there is weight, doctrine, and beauty in this text. Would you make us see it? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. What do you want to hear first, the good news or the bad news? That was last week's sermon. <laughs> yeah, that actually is exactly how I opened last week's message. And no, no, I'm not going to preach last week's sermon again, though that would make my life significantly easier were I to continue to do so. But that question is actually still the right starter. See, last week we saw Paul use the pattern of bad news followed by good news to talk with you and me about how every single person who has ever been saved is saved. Last week we saw we were dead in sins. We followed the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us in the heavenlies in Christ. And God did this solely by his grace. And we receive God's grace solely, only, alone, through faith. And we take no credit for our salvation. But once we're saved, we do try to live to the glory of God as God planned before the dawn of time. And this week, Paul is going to use almost identically the same pattern of, of bad news followed by good news. It's really, really bad news, and it's followed by really, really wonderful, wonderful news. But this time, the issue has to do with God forming a new people out of peoples who hated one another and who hated God. So let's get started, friends, with the first of three points we will find today as we do sort of the first half, if you will, of a sermon that I would call Uniting All Peoples in Christ. So our first point this morning, we were far from God. Look at verses 11 and 12 and see if you can see us being far from God. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Does that sound familiar? It's the opening paragraph of what? A Christmas carol, right? Five short sentences there, and Dickens settles one fact quite clearly in our mind. Whoever the heck Marley was, he is dead. Unquestionably dead. And why does Dickens point out so stringently for us that Marley was dead? Why do we need to know how dead Marley was? We need to know so that what comes in the rest of that book will be fantastic. Because when Marley comes and talks to Scrooge a little bit later, it's creepy. Well, last week, Paul opened by telling us all that outside of Christ, we were dead in our sins. And that served to help us see how miraculous it is that salvation would come to us. We were dead in sins. God made us alive. That's a miracle. And this week, friends, Paul has, has another miracle for us to see. He is going to, to nail a point down here in the beginning so that you and I can see the miraculousness of the miracle. And while it might seem hard for you to believe this, the miracle we will see today is just as miraculous as God raising you from the dead. And Paul's point comes in the simple fact that Jews and Gentiles were separate. They did not go together at all. In fact, in Paul's day, Jews and Gentiles hated one another. Each group thought the other was godless, detestable, and unworthy. And you have to grasp, dear Christian, that point. You have to grasp that before the time of the church, Jews and Gentiles couldn't stand each other. Because if you miss that fact, you miss everything God wants you to see coming next. So what are Jews and Gentiles anyway? It's not language you hear in the American culture very often. The Jewish nation is the surviving people of the nation of Israel. Primarily, they descend from the tribe of Judah. In fact, the word Jew is a shortening of the word Judah. And these people were chosen by God to carry the glorious promise. They were given the law of God. They were given ceremonies and rituals and festivals to follow in order to worship God. And they were given a land to settle in under the protection of God. The nation of Israel was chosen by God to carry God's promise of the Messiah, the anointed one who would come into the world and save God's people from their sins. Now, they didn't know necessarily that the one to come was going to save God's people from their sins, but that was what he was coming to do. Now, Gentiles, in comparison to Jews, are all people not of the nation of Israel. 
So if you're here this morning and you are not of ethnic Jewish blood, you are a Gentile. So how many of y'all are Gentiles? Four of you are. I would like to welcome you to Providence Reform Synagogue. Um, I'm guessing that I don't know of any of you who are in any way full ethnic Jewish folks. If you are, God bless you, glad you're here. But I've known, you know, most of us are Gentiles, right? All of us, I would almost guess, are Gentiles. Here's what you need to know, Gentiles. Here's what you need to understand. To the Jew, the Gentile nations were all considered unclean. Why point that out? We need to see how far apart Jews and Gentiles were, how big the separation was, so you can understand the miracle that is the New Testament. See, verse 11 tells us uh, Ephesians and the people who lived near Ephesus the Gentiles, they needed to remember something. They are Gentiles. They are physically not connected to the chosen people of God. They are of the wrong bloodline to be clean before God in a general sense. The Gentiles were called by the Jews the uncircumcised. Now, circumcision was practiced by, by nations other than Israel. But to the Jew, the physical mark of circumcision was a sign that a man belonged to the bloodline of Abraham. It was a sign that a man was born into the nation that was one day going to bring Messiah into the world. Now even here, by the way, in verse 11, Paul is giving us a hint that the physical bloodline, even in Paul's day, is not as important as it used to seem. He points out to us that circumcision is an act done in the flesh, made by human hands. Circumcision of the body is merely a physical outward act, but it has no power to change a heart or save a soul. And that concept is very consistent. Even with what you see in the Old Testament of Scripture, the Jews were all physically circumcised, but that marked them only as part of a physical nation. Only those who were changed from within, who were spiritually circumcised, if you will, were actually forgiven by God and given eternal blessing and eternal hope. Like if you think of Deuteronomy 10.16 or passages like Jeremiah 4.4, you will see passages that call the people of Israel to circumcise their hearts before God, even in the Old Testament, God was saying, guys, this might mark you as part of this physical nation, but your heart has to change if you're going to be part of my real, my people. And with New Testament eyes, we can see that that physical Israel did receive a great many blessings from God. They were blessed as the covenant nation of God. But the big purpose behind physical Israel was that physical Israel would be the means through which God would bring the genuine blessing of the Christ into the world. To the Jew, being physically a part of Israel, to them, man, that was the most important thing you could be. It is a glorious thing that we are part of our people. Our people are better than your people. We are better than you. Our blood makes us better than you. Our history, our forefathers make us better than you. The laws we follow make us better than you. And that belief led Jews to look down upon everybody who was not part of the physical nation. And even when a Gentile, like you or me, would go to the nation and convert to their faith, we were always looked down upon, we would be not considered the same as the ethnic Jew. Now, is there a sense in which we should understand that the Jews were really privileged by God? 
You better believe it. Psalm 147, 19 and 20, which I almost read to us in Sunday school, but I decided not to because I'm going to read it here. It says, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. What a neat text, huh? In Romans 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul asks the question, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews had the advantage of having the word of God. In Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, Paul goes on to say, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, were there advantages for being a Jew? According to the word, yeah. This was great. They had the word. They had the promise. The rest of the world didn't. Now, if we left things here, you would say to yourself, man, These people really are a superior people to everyone else. In fact, I want to look a little further in verse 12, and we'll look and we'll see that there is even more division because you need to see, again, how great is the division between Jew and Gentile so you can see the glory of the passage. Stick with me because it's going to get better. But in verse 12, Paul gives us five ways in which we Gentiles, unlike the circumcised Jewish nation, were dramatically far from God. Five things that separated you and me from God simply by our heritage. First, Paul says that we, because we were not of that physical nation, were separated from Christ. Because it was to the nation of Israel that God promised that the Messiah would come, right? To a person born in Egypt, a person born in Greece, a a person born in Rome a few years before the time of the church, there was no connection in their mind to the promise of blessing. In the Old Testament, the Christ was promised to Israel. Paul says that in Romans 9 verse 5, right? From their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. And there are places in the Old Testament that we can see, if we study the Old Testament faithfully, we can see that the promised one is indeed supposed to be a blessing to all nations, the whole world. In Genesis 3, or Genesis 12, 3, God told Abraham, in him all the nations of the earth, in, in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. All the families of the earth. It was, but it was the nation that descended from Abraham The nation marked by circumcision, Paul says in verse 11, the nation under the law of God, that nation was going to bring the Christ into the world. The Christ belongs in a sense to that nation. And Gentiles around around the rest of the world, they were totally unaware of this promise. They were far from this promise. They were far from having Christ. So there was an advantage to being a Jew. Since we also were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And very simply there, we Gentiles did not have the benefit in Paul's day and before of being under the protections of the law of God. Rome had no law code that was anything like as perfect as the law of God, the law of loving neighbor and loving God. 
We, we even, again, we got some Hammurabi code this morning in Sunday school, and we saw that's not as perfect as God's word. We were strangers to that nation that had that great law. Third, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. God had promised in covenant language that the Christ was going to come. God promised that the Christ would reign. God promised that a descendant of David's would come and rule the world forever. And the Gentiles who were around the nation of Israel had no concept of what those promises were or why they would matter. And the Gentiles, Paul said, forth had no hope. I told you a couple of weeks ago, hope is a sure thing in the future. It's not a wish, but it's a perfect promise. The Jews had the promises of God. They understood something of a future hope. The Gentiles in Ephesus had no idea of hope whatsoever. There was no future for them. There was no concept of anything great coming their way. Fifth, Paul says the Gentiles were without God in the world. Now that's a strange thing for Paul to write here, by the way. The city of Ephesus boasted the temple of the goddess Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And those people bowed down to an idol that had likely been shaped from a piece of fallen meteorite. They believed that this was a stone sent to them as a god from the heavens. And Paul says, you all were completely without God. They didn't know the true God. They didn't know the God who made them. Now, as a little side point, recognize, dear friends, that a person who lives apart from a relationship with the true God of the Bible is a person living without God in the world. It doesn't matter if that person is religious or not. That person might be significantly more religious than you are. But the point of the Bible is that if you do not know the true God, you don't have a God. Now let's bundle all this together because this is the bad news section, right? Jews and Gentiles are totally different peoples. The Jews had the promises, the covenants, the law, the hope. Then as you look at yourself, Gentile, because all y'all are Gentiles... You were Gentiles. You're Gentiles living in a Gentile nation. You need to realize that those things that the Jews had, you would not have if God doesn't take action. In truth, that separation of Jew and Gentile, that probably was a failure on the part of the Old Testament nation of Israel. Those people should have been spreading the word of God around. They should have been calling nations around them to come and submit to the law of God. As Eric even read to us this morning, that law was given as a witness to the nations to testify that they have a better God than any of those nations could imagine. Jews should have been inviting Gentiles to convert, but instead they became a smug, insular people. They missed the global vision that God was going to bless all nations through Abraham's seed. John MacArthur writes about it this way. He says, quote, He gave them such strict dietary, clothing, marriage, ceremonial, and other laws that they could never fit in, easily fit into another society. You guys would agree, wouldn't you, that the Old Testament Jewish law would make you kind of stand out in your society? MacArthur goes on to say, those distinctions, like the special blessings God gave them, were intended to be a tool for witness, 
But Israel continually perverted them into a source for pride, isolation, and self-glory. So, you know, regardless of what the reasons are behind our separation from the Jewish nation, if you will, the first point, the Marley was dead to begin with line that has to undergird everything that we learn today, the backdrop of this passage is that we Gentiles were separated from God and absolutely hopeless. Get that feeling. Understand that you and I are born of a people who for years lacked any concept of biblical salvation. Understand that we made ourselves guilty of sin before the God who made us, and that same God has every right to destroy us. Understand how helpless this should make us feel. Understand how dark it seems because it will help you see the miracle that comes in the next verse. Are you feeling the significance of the separation? No, okay. Let me go back to point one then. We'll start it over. Are you seeing it? How far off you would be? Then point two. God brought us near. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Last week I told you that the phrase, but God, may be the most glorious phrase in all the Bible. Here, it's the same basic concept We were far off. We were without hope. We had no chance to get under the covenant of God. But once again, God acted. In verse 5, he said, God, when we were dead, made us alive. Here we see that God, when we were far off, brought us near. We were far off. We lacked hope. We lacked promise. But God turned it around And the work of bringing to God a people who were far off from his promises was done in and through Jesus Christ, the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one of God, the Messiah. He will bring to himself, bring to God people who formerly had no claim on him and no right to have any part of his kingdom. What did Jesus do to bring us near? Jesus is and has always been God the Son. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in time, at just the right time, Jesus stepped out of heaven and made himself flesh, becoming truly human while always remaining truly God. And Jesus was born into this world As far as Jesus' humanity goes, he was perfectly placed to fulfill all of God's promises to Israel. Jesus is descended from the lines of Abraham and David. Jesus was born as a perfect representative of Israel. And Jesus lived a perfect human life. He obeyed and fulfilled every ounce of the law of God. Jesus met God's standard of perfection in a way that no other human being ever has done. And then Jesus went to the cross to die on behalf of all he will save. Like a lamb going to an altar for sacrifice, Jesus allowed his blood to be shed, his life to be taken, so that he could be the perfect, only sacrifice for sins. And then after his death, Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday morning. 
And in that resurrection, Jesus proved that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And Jesus proved that his shed blood is fully sufficient to cover the sins of all who come to him. In fact, he proved that his shed blood is the only thing sufficient to cover any sin of any person. And Jesus proved that his claim to be God in the flesh and the fulfillment of the law is true by rising from the grave. And then quite beautifully, Jesus in his death and in his resurrection opened the way for more than only Jews to be saved. Jesus opened the way for people of every nation, people formerly far off from God, to find their sins forgiven. Jesus made the way clear for people who don't have covenant relationship with God to enter into the covenant of grace. In the previous paragraph, Paul said that God made us alive when we were dead. Paul said that that God made us alive and united us with Christ. And here, Paul says that God took us who were far off from the promises of God, unable to find life, unable to find hope, and he brought us near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's going to stop working, isn't it? You know, both of the concepts that we have here, God making us alive, God bringing us near, they're examples of God through Jesus doing the humanly impossible. They're examples of God doing an unfathomable miracle. Don't let the distraction of my microphone not working make you miss that. Do you understand that it is just as stunning that God would take a dead person and make him alive as it is that God would take someone far off from him like you and me and draw us near? God fulfills his perfect plan to save people from all nations. In Christ. So, Christians, this section ought to rock your world. And if it doesn't, I would suggest that your view is too small of the gaps God has bridged to bring you to faith in Christ. Christians, you, me, we were enemies. Of God. We were, verse 1, corpses. God made us alive. God united us with Christ. We were Gentiles. We were walled off by the uh, walled off from the people of God by our birth and by our sin. God brought us near in Christ. God bridged an impossible gap in Christ. And to do this work, Jesus shed his blood as the perfect, only, final sacrifice for sins. Christians, be amazed by this. You were far off. God brought you near. Praise God for that kind of grace. 
And if you're not sure where you are in Christ this morning, let this call you to faith. You need to be forgiven. You need to be brought into the nation of the people of God. And the only way that is going to happen, friend, is through the shed blood of Jesus. So trust in Jesus. Turn from any other solution you think you have and ask Jesus to have mercy on you. Come to Christ in faith. But how? How did God bring us near? This is really important, friends. So we're going to turn our attention to how God brought us near in the next couple verses. Point three, God made a new people. Y'all, this is a big deal. God made a new people. Look at 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We all used to be far from God. Did we establish that enough yet that we were far from God? Thank you. Eric's like, please don't preach that part again. The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. And God moved to bring us all near. How did he do it? How would the Lord make peace? How would the Lord make peace between people who hate each other that much? Well, the first thing we see here is that he himself is our peace. It is our Lord Jesus Christ who makes peace. It is our Lord Jesus Christ who is our peace. There is no peace apart from Jesus. God, by all rights, ought to be at war with us. You get that? Jews and Gentiles were, in Paul's day, figuratively and sometimes quite literally at war with one another. But the blood of Jesus Christ brings peace. Now, two images here I want you to catch so that you will understand what Jesus has done. One of the images has to do with what he says is a wall of hostility. The other has to do with our two separate nations or our peoples. Again, Paul says in verse 14, this kind of summarizes it, Jesus has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what does he mean that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility? The Jew would have known right away. Remember, though, this is a letter to Gentiles. In the temple grounds in Jerusalem, the Jew would know that the temple grounds were divided by a little wall that clearly marked out how far toward the holy place Gentiles were allowed to go. You guys have heard about that dividing wall, right? The court of the Gentiles, right? That wall had signs on it that read, quote, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his own ensuing death. Well, there you go. And so, yes, a Jewish reader of Paul's letter would have understood, hey, dividing the wall, temple courts, got it. But listen to me, friends, a Gentile reader would not have had any idea what was being talked about there. So that is at best an illustration. There's something 
else you've got to see. What is the wall Jesus destroyed? Because it is not literally that physical wall in the temple court. That's not what's being said here that Jesus destroyed. And you find the answer of how, in how Jesus broke down the wall of division. He did so, quote, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So to break down the division between Jew and Gentile, Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So first of all, what law are we talking about here? We're not talking about here what many would refer to as the moral law of God summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. Paul didn't say Jesus abolished the requirement to love God and love neighbor. That is not what was abolished. Paul did not say Jesus abolished every law and every rule. In fact, Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But what Paul does say is that Jesus abolished the law expressed in ordinances. And the point of reference here is to the particularly Jewish ceremonial law. In the Old Testament, God gave many commands to national Israel that were designed to separate Israel from their neighboring nations. God gave laws about which foods were okay to eat and which foods were not okay to eat. God gave laws to, for Israelites about how to cut their hair. Don't round the corners, right? Uh, or he gave, he gave laws about, hey, don't, don't use two types of fabric in a garment and don't plant any field with two different types of seed. And those laws were laws that were given to the nation of Israel to keep the nation of Israel from being able to, be, to get lost in the foreign cultures around them. A Gentile from outside the nation of Israel would have been able to look at an Israelite and spot them from a mile away saying, that person is not whatever I am. He looks different. He acts different. He plants his crops different. He cuts his hair different. He won't eat the food that I eat. That person is different from me. There is a division between me and that person. There is a dividing wall that separates me and that person. And the ceremonial law, the law expressed on ordinances would also include the laws related to, to sacrifices and temple worship, the ordinances about what animals to sacrifice for what sins, the, 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 the stuff about ceremonial cleanness, the, the, the stuff about the festivals that were to be held. Those were an extremely important part of the faithful worship of God in the Old Testament, no doubt. Those ordinances were necessary for the people of Israel to be in right relationship with God, but none of those sacrifices and none of those ceremonies ever actually brought about forgiveness on their own. Instead, every ceremony and every sacrifice was a pointer to the eventual coming of Jesus, the one only perfect sacrifice. Only the blood of Jesus can bring forgiveness to the people of God. So the commands expressed in ordinances, ceremonial law, festival law, way, the way you wear your clothes and food law, all of those built up a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And Jesus Christ destroyed that wall by abolishing those commands. The word abolish is an important word, friends. It means literally to make something empty, to make something useless. It means to make something meaningless. It means 
literally, and it's used this way multiple times in Scripture, to bring a thing to an end. That's what the word abolish here means. Jesus brought it to an end. Jesus took down the division between Jew and Gentile by bringing Old Testament ceremony to an end. And this, friends, is why you and I do not continue to participate in Jewish religious ceremonies today. If the inspired word of God tells us that Jesus has abolished these ceremonies and ordinances... If he has made them empty, if he's brought them to an end, we would not in any way honor Jesus if we perpetuate them. Jesus has given his church new ordinances. They're better than the old. Baptism, Lord's Supper, they serve as the reminders of Jesus' perfect sacrifice, his triumphant resurrection, and our eternal hope. Those are our ordinances we dare not go back to something else. And then the question leads us to the other issue at hand. What about our two nations? Why did Jesus abolish the law? Why did he break down the dividing wall of hostility? Paul says Christ did this that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Do you all hear that? God took two nations, Jews and Gentiles, and he made one new man, one new nation, one new people instead of the two. God did not intend to make Jewish Gentiles. God did not intend to make Gentile Jews. God instead intentionally does away with both identifications so that he can make an entirely new people, not Jew, not Gentile, but Christian. Paul says Christ did this so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The two nations become one. We're made into one body, brought into reconciliation. The hostility that used to be between Jew and Gentile, all the reasons the Jews used to have for hating the Gentiles, all the reasons the Gentiles used to have for hating the Jews, all that stuff that's in those two nations past, the hostility is dead because in Christ there is no longer a single thing that exists to divide those nations. In Colossians, Paul, Paul spoke of the reconciliation like this. In Colossians 3, 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. The Jewish ceremonies, friends, were, divide, were designed to draw the distinction between the nations. But now that Christ has come, now that Christ has fulfilled the law of God, those ceremonies are abolished and the division is destroyed. Those who truly follow Jesus Christ do not focus on things that draw divisions between peoples. Not in Christ. Instead, we focus on the new people, the new nation created in Christ. So we don't emphasize as Christians our particular nationality. We don't emphasize our ethnicity. Neither do we return to things intended to separate Jew from Gentile like the food laws or the old covenant ceremonies. We just live as a new people, a new nation in Christ. But there's another reconciliation in view here. 
God did not just use the blood of Jesus to reconcile Jew to Gentile or Gentile to Jew. God used the blood of Jesus to reconcile us to himself. We were part of an enemy nation. Our nation could have been labeled the God-haters. We opposed the Lord in our sin and folly. And you say, well, I didn't mean to. That doesn't matter. You by your nature in your sin, me by my nature in my sin, were God-haters. We thought we knew how the world ought to run. Be honest. Don't you still think you know how the world ought to go? If you say to me, no, you're lying because I know what you people do when you talk politics. If I was in charge, you know what? If you were in charge, you would screw the world up just as much. And I promise you this, you do not know better of how the world ought to go than God. And I will tell you this, friends, as one who watches from time to time when people are hurt or hurt one another, when awful things happen, when we fail miserably, There's a lot of times that it could be super, super tempting to say, I, if I were God, I wouldn't have let this happen. I wouldn't have done it that way. And I'm wrong. Because God's bigger than me. And God's better than me. And I lack the wisdom to see everything. That doesn't mean everything that happens is good. But God is God and I'm not. And every last one of us has at different times in our lives looked at things that God has done, God has allowed, God has commanded, and we thought to ourselves, you know what, I I don't think I like that. And that is us saying to God, I should be on your chair. Why don't you step down and let me sit there for a little bit and I'll straighten things out. That is God hating. We thought we should be able to do things our own way and we have all failed to live up to the righteousness of God and we could never do a single thing to fix ourselves but God sent Jesus and Jesus died and Jesus rose again and everyone under the grace of Jesus is reconciled to God. We're not God-haters anymore. We're not God's enemies anymore. Instead, God takes us from our nation, the God-haters, and he adopts us into the family of God and calls us God's own beloved children. And again, I've got to say, let's bundle this all together. We as Gentiles used to be far off from God and far off from God's people, and God moved to bring us near because of Jesus. And we know because of Jesus, God saved us by grace through faith in Christ. We saw that last week. And this week we learned that because of the cross, there is no longer any room at all for us to be divided from one another. We are not Jews. We are not Gentiles. We are only the people of God. God did away with ceremonies that were uniquely Jewish. God did away with boundaries that used to divide peoples. And there is no room at all in the church of God for any person to define himself or herself by nationality, by skin color, by cultural tradition, or any other dividing factor. And yes, that would mean in our current culture defining yourself by victim status or intersections of oppression. There is no room for that in the new people of God. We are the people of God and that is all. If you want to define yourself Christian, define yourself as Christian. 
And in the reconciliation God made, God took two peoples, both nations who opposed God in different ways and who opposed each other. And God first took those nations. He reconciled them to himself. He made us alive with Christ. God hid us with Christ. God calls us his very own. And, 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 then, and then God says, you guys get to live as a new nation, one nation united to me and to each other. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see from verses 17 to 22, what does it mean for us to live under that? Because there's a whole lot more that we didn't have time to touch today. But for now, what do you walk away with? We were far off. God brought us near in Christ. God made a new people in Christ. If you're a Christian, this ought to utterly amaze you. It ought to make you give God thanks for a grace that breaks down things that should have separated you from God forever. And it should make you be careful not to allow yourself to put in place walls of division that God has removed. Love Jesus, thank Jesus, and live as part of the one people of God. And if you're not under the grace of God, I urge you, enter the nation of the people of God. It's not Jewish. It's not Gentile. It's not American. It's not something else. It is a people who are defined by the fact that they are the people who are forgiven. Surrender to Jesus. Call him your king. Cry out to him for mercy. And you will find yourself reconciled to God and able to begin to be reconciled to others too. Will you pray with me? Father, you know, you know how inadequate I feel to communicate the depth of this. But there's gospel here, significant world-changing gospel here. And Father, I would ask you to do what only you can do to communicate to us the significant truth of this. God, we are failing, failing sinners. You are the holy God. Let us be your people. Lord, there are multiple ways that Christians can be tempted to allow division to come in as we define ourselves by our cultures, by our pasts, by the past of our forefathers. And we'll talk more about that as time goes on, but God, help us even now to rejoice in being the one people of God brought near from so far off we could have never come on our own. Save souls, heal hearts, draw people to obedience. That's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.